Good morning, my name is Theo. Today's reading comes from Genesis chapter two, verses one through three. Please follow along in your own Bibles or simply listen as the scriptures are read. Again, that's Genesis chapter two, starting with verse one. Following the reading, I invite you to respond in worship with the singing of the doxology. Parents and guardians of children in nursery, preschool, and kindergarten through second grade, you are invited to escort your kids to the back of the room to join Kids Commons upstairs. As you are able, we invite you to stand for the reading of God's word. Hear the word of the Lord. So the creation of the heavens and the earth and everything in them was completed. On the seventh day, God had finished his work of creation, so he rested from all his work. And God blessed the seventh day and declared it holy, because it was the day when he rested from all his work of creation. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Good morning. My name is Matt. I'm one of the pastors here at Haverhill Commons Church. It's great to see you all here. I definitely encourage you to stay after the service if you would like to be part of our first ever All Commons meeting. Um, it's always fun to do things for the first time as a church community, and this is the first time we've done anything like that. So um, if you're able to stay, it would be great to talk to you a little bit about what's going on. Typically, I'd start a, a sermon with a personal story. Uh, this morning, I want to start with a story that's not just my story, but I believe that it's all of our stories, and it's a very old one. It goes like this. In the beginning, God spoke and created the heavens and the earth. First day. On the second day, God spoke and separated the waters of the earth from the waters of the heavens. On the third day, God spoke and the land sprouted every sort of tree and plants. On the fourth day, God spoke and two great lights appeared in the sky to shine upon the earth to give us the seasons and the days and the years. On the fifth day, God spoke and fish filled the waters and birds filled the airs and each one produced more of its kind. On the sixth day, God spoke, and the land produced living creatures to roam the earth. God spoke and created human beings, male and female, in God's image. He created them to take care of the earth, to take care of the fish and the birds and the animals therein. And after these six days, God looked out over all of creation, and God said it was very good. This is Genesis 1. This is the first story in our Bibles, and here's where chapter 1 ends at the end of day six. Back in the Middle Ages, when scribes and scholars divided the Bible into chapters and verses, they thought that this was a good place to put it into a chapter. Creation is over. Or is it? Chapter two, verse one. So creation, so the creation of the heavens and the earth and everything in them was completed. Verse two. On the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done. On the seventh day, God finished the work that he had done. The Hebrew grammar of Genesis 2 sit or 2 2 indicates that some kind of work happened on that seventh day because on that seventh day the work was completed. So, what work was done on day seven? According to Jewish scholars like Abraham Joshua Heschel, on the seventh day God created, God finished creation because on the seventh day God made space and God made time to rest. And in that seventh day, when God made rest, God then decided to rest God's self in that day. God made the day, then God rested in the space. Why? Why in the world did God rest? When we hear rest, we might think collapsing, exhausted into a bed, tank totally empty. But that's not what's happening here because God doesn't get tired. God doesn't get exhausted. God doesn't need to pause. God doesn't need a breather. 
So God didn't need to rest in that sense. The Hebrew word translated rest here in verse 2 doesn't mean rest in a tired sense. It literally means to cease or to stop. It means to cease or stop. God wasn't resting because God was tired. After six days of work, God didn't need to recuperate. But after six days of work, God chose to stop, to cease, to set down the tools, to change gears, not out of fatigue, but because stopping itself was good. God ceased because it is good to cease. Now, don't hear me say that work is bad, of course, right? Work is good. All the work that God had done by the end of six days was very good, and work is still good. When we're building and creating and organizing and achieving and advancing and serving and shepherding, we're acting as creatures created in God's image. We're mirroring God's activity on those first six days. When we're raising kids, when we're tending to animals, when we're writing code, when we're grading essays and preparing presentations and delivering delivery truck items and growing vegetables, we're doing the same ordering work that God did on the first six days of creation. And that work is good. But work isn't the whole picture, right? Work is good, but there was a seventh day. The story of those seven days isn't a story of rest alone. It's a story about needing both rest and work. Work by itself isn't good enough. Rest by itself isn't good enough. But the rhythm, working and then not working, working and then not working, that's the rhythm that God created. That's the seven-day rhythm that brings us life. We see the goodness of that rhythm made explicit in the next verse, in verse 3, because God blessed the seventh day and declared it holy because that was the day that God stopped. That was the day God ceased. It's pretty fascinating that the first thing God blessed and declared holy wasn't an object. You'd think it might be an object, right? But it wasn't a person. It wasn't a mountaintop. It wasn't a temple or any other kind of building. The first holy thing was a day, a length of time, a length of time set aside every week for people to stop doing what they normally did and there to do something else. Biblically, blessing language is always gift language. When God blesses the seventh day, God's making the seventh day a gift for us to enjoy. Blessing a day, a period of time, was a brilliant move by God, I think, because everyone has access to this gift. We don't have to have a special artifact. We don't have to pilgrimage to a holy city or a holy location. God has given us an amazing gift that each one of us can enjoy without needing to do anything else or to have anything else than what we already have. Time. We all have time. So let's sum up these first three verses. On the seventh day, God created and blessed and set aside a period of time for rest. And on that seventh day, God stopped. God rested, and it was good. This rhythm is good. Work, stop work. Work, stop work. When God chose Israel to be God's chosen people, God commanded them to also embrace this rhythm of work and stop work. This is the fourth commandment. Exodus 20, remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. But the seventh day is a Sabbath to your Lord, your God, and on it you shall not do any kind of work. When they were freed from their slavery in Egypt, the people of Israel really began to practice Sabbath in earnest. And Sabbath was pretty weird to every other nation around them. The nations around Israel didn't stop working on the seventh day. They went right on selling and buying. They went right on toiling and working. Slaves kept toiling, animals kept burdening, but on the Sabbath, Israel stopped, signaling to the rest of the world that they were embracing a different way, that they were listening to God and enjoying the rhythm that God laid out for them in the creation story. 
And in a move that I think confused our neighbors even more, when Israel stopped, everyone in Israel stopped. It wasn't just the powerful and wealthy who could more easily afford to take a break. Everyone, rich and poor, observed the Sabbath together. Families, adults and children, kings and prophets and warriors and farmers and slaves and immigrants and foreigners, everyone stopped and did something different on the Sabbath. On the Sabbath, the most vulnerable were protected from a life of endless labor. They were able to stop. Even the animals were given a break on the Sabbath. So on this day, this special day that happened every single week, everyone remembered their collective dependence on God. On Sabbath, all worshipped, and on Sabbath, all were equal. By the time Jesus showed up, the Jews had turned Sabbath rest into something confining and legalistic. What started as a practice to help a liberated people embrace their freedom slowly devolved into a way for religious leaders to exercise authority over the people and tighten their monopoly on power. Sabbath laws came about. They became ways to punish those who didn't or couldn't keep the Sabbath. A day that was supposed to refresh and restore was a day full of intricate definitions of work and rest, rules governing what they could do and could not do. Eventually, it became a day to feel like you were earning approval and doing a good job, or a day to feel like you weren't doing enough. They sort of lost the forest Sabbath for the forest trees, right? So Jesus reclaimed the seventh day from that legalistic mentality. He explained in Mark 2 that the Sabbath was made for human beings, right? Not human beings for the Sabbath. <laughs> Weekly Sabbath was a gift to humanity so that we could stop, so that we could cease working one day a week in order that we might experience a fuller kind of life. Which sounds pretty wonderful, if you ask me. You know, a few months back, I started to feel pretty overwhelmed by the sheer amount of work that sort of was piling up in front of me. No matter how hard I worked, there was always more to do. And I don't think I'm alone in that because virtually every time I ask anyone how they're doing, you guys know this, what's the very first thing people say? Busy. Busy, right? Really busy. And sometimes they'll add what we don't always normally add, stressed out, spread too thin, trying to do too much, feeling pressure to do more and to do it faster. And all the while, feeling pressure not to break a sweat when I do it, to convey this impression that all the effort doesn't actually take a lot of effort. Or sometimes we wear our exhaustion on our sleeves like a badge of honor. Look at how much I can do. But I think all this effort is actually killing us slowly over time. You know, I would routinely push and push and push until I was totally overwhelmed and totally exhausted. And when I got to that point, you know what I'd do? I would crash. I would crash. Usually for me, this happened on a Sunday afternoon, after Sunday morning service. The whole week is full of meetings and one-on-ones and emails and website updates and scheduling and counseling and mail chimping and sermon writing and sermon editing, and it all culminated on a Sunday morning service. When I eventually made my way back to my house and opened my front door and shut it behind me, after church, I would crash. Now, crashing is not the same as resting, right? <laughs> crashing is not the same as resting. First of all, crashing isn't really a choice, right? It's what happens after we've lost control and we cannot pull out of our nosedive. Second, crashing activities are not usually healthy activities. When I crash, I'm not really resting. When I crash, what I'm doing is more like indulging. Indulging. Indulging is what we let ourselves do when, it's, indulging is when we let ourselves do something that we like doing, but we let ourselves do it for longer than is actually good for us. It's 
Indulging is consuming with mindless indiscretion. It's a whole tub of ice cream, right? Instead of just a bowl. It's an impulse purchase, justified because we've earned that indulgence because we've worked so hard this week. For me, I'd get home Sundays and I'd crumple onto the couch and I would watch football. And games came on at 1. And then more games came on at 4.30. And then more games came on at 8 o'clock. And before you know it, I'd spend the better part of nine hours in front of a TV. It wasn't really resting. I was numbing. Numbing, right? And that's how painkillers work. They don't take away the pain. The pain is still there. They simply take away our ability to feel the pain. I wonder if you can relate. Flooded with work, always more than we can finish, until every ounce of strength and energy has been squeezed out of us until we crash. Not because we've chosen to stop, but because we literally can't keep going. And when we crash, we're flooded with an avalanche of entertainment options to numb our feelings. More options than we could ever consume. An endless stream of things for us to watch or games for us to play or images for us to consume or items that we need to buy so that we can enjoy life. You know, it wasn't always this bad. I'm old enough to remember when the wider culture actually sort of embraced a day a week of rest. I remember when kids didn't have sports on Sundays, when most stores and restaurants were closed, and now stores are open virtually every day. Except, I guess, for Chick-fil-A. They're stubbornly holding out, even though it costs them a billion dollars a year in potential revenue. But most stores never close at all. The internet is always open, and Amazon is always happy to fill your cart for you. You know, I think some folks live in one of these two extremes or the other, either living in this working, striving, never-ceasing world, or living entirely in this numbing, indulging world that never ceases. But I think probably most of us bounce back and forth between the two. Working to numbing, and then back to working, and then back to numbing, and then back to working. So rarely doing what God did on the seventh day. So rarely stopping. At some core level, our bodies, minds, and spirits tell us, this is not healthy. But there's nothing out there, nothing in society that will help us embrace a different rhythm. There's nothing out there that will encourage us to slow down or to consume less or to stop for a minute, let alone a whole day. The world is built to extract as much from us as it possibly can, and then it will happily numb us from the pain when our tank runs empty. God, from the very beginning, has given us a different way, a sustainable way, a rhythm of work and rest that will result in human flourishing. The reason that we chose to preach this whole sermon series on this topic of Sabbath is because we're feeling a collective longing for this healthier way. We're calling this series, this, if you don't like this, it's my fault. We're calling this series, The Restistance. Which is actually hard to say, I had to practice a lot of times. The Restistance, Reclaiming the Rhythm of Rest. Reclaiming the rhythm because it's not something new, right? This is something old. The oldest creation itself. God has already given us this rhythm, but have we lost it along the way? Moment of truth. How many of you Sabbath? How many of you set aside a day, a week, to do life differently? Maybe you all do. But my sense is that almost none of us do. Myself included. 
So I'm not coming to you as an expert who can impart my wisdom. I'm speaking as a fellow traveler who believes that God's gift of ceasing is good for me and good for us and good for our families and our communities. I'm coming to you as someone who desperately wants to incorporate that rhythm more directly into my life. Our hope in this whole series is that we can begin to support each other in our efforts to embrace this different way, this different rhythm. And I wanted to call this series The Restistance because I think it's going to take some courage from us and a willingness to actually fight for this different way. The cultural stream is rushing in one direction, calling against the call to stop, against the call to rest. If we're going to reclaim the rhythm of rest, then I think we're going to have to fight for it. So each week leading up to Easter, we're going to dive into a different aspect of Sabbath and what rest actually looks like and feels like for us and what will come up for us when we start to disturb the waters of our status quo. It's probably going to be a little bit uncomfortable at times. We're probably going to feel things that we don't normally feel because we've suppressed them under the weight of all of our numbing. We're going to have to ask some of questions of our to-do lists and evaluate them. We're going to have to be a little bit more honest with ourselves about why it's so hard for us to stop. Why is it so hard for me to truly stop? I think for some folks, stopping is hard because it threatens our identity. Because we've built our whole lives and identity around the work that we do. All of our lives, we've been rewarded for our accomplishments, and we've been punished when we failed. And when our worth is attached to our performance, we can become workaholics, right? We can become perfectionists. We can become slave drivers to ourselves and those around us. And as long as we keep that up, as long as we keep working, we'll never have to ask the kinds of questions that Susan posed to us last Wednesday at our Ash Wednesday service. She asked this question, do we have a place in this world because we're wanted, or do we need to constantly earn the space? We constantly need to re-earn the space. Are we loved or, what, or, must, or, or must we earn our love? You know, I know folks whose lives are built entirely on their performance, and they literally can't stop. They can't. They would rather work and work and work and work than stop, only to face an identity crisis. For others of us, even if we long for rest, it can feel practically impossible to actually do. We can't spare a few hours, let alone a whole day, every week. We might like the idea of rest. We might even draw some trickle of hope from the thought that someone out there is actually resting, even if we can't. Because we know that it's really just not possible for us. I mean, look at the demands of our lives. Family and work and school and church and meetings and childcare and bills and commutes and housework. And those are just the routine things that happen all the time. When you add in the unexpected, the accidents, the illnesses, the snowstorms, and a heap of other unexpected things, we're rushing from one emergency to the next emergency, careening down the road. How in the world are we supposed to take a day of rest? It already feels like we don't have enough hours in the days we have. I can often catch myself in a spiral of hopelessness when it comes to resting. I'll catch myself saying with a sense of helplessness, I just can't find the time. I can't find it. Where is it? But on the seventh day, God made time. God made the time that we need to rest. God made enough time. But we're not just going to find it lying around. It's not going to just happen. Our internal and our external currents, the work, the indulgence, all that stuff's not going to rest or give up or relent. If we're going to have time, we're going to have to actually make the time. Choose it. And maybe it's at first a choice we make on faith alone, an active choice to leave some things undone, to set down our tools, to change gears, not because we really even want to, but because God's blessed that seventh day and asked us to keep it holy. 
It's an act of faith because we're trusting that God was right when God gave us the gift of rest. We're agreeing with God that this rhythm between work and rest and rest and work, that rhythm is a good rhythm. If you can agree to that, at least intellectually, in your heart, if you're ready to believe that it's good to work and it's good to stop, then I think the first step is to identify a specific time each week when you can make that effort. Think about your own life and your own rhythms. When is the time each week when you can stop? Maybe it's Fridays, Friday night into Saturday night. For a while in my life, that was my time. What time each week can you Sabbath? Maybe 24 hours seems impossible and sounds impossible. And maybe actually right now, 24 hours is impossible for you. So don't start with 24, right? Start with 12. Or start with six. Or start with two. I think the most important thing is that you start. That you stop. And you set aside a different time to do something that's not normal, that's not usual. That you embrace this rhythm of rest with God. And no, you can't just wing it. You can't just like leave it to chance. You can't just like hope that like on a random Thursday you'll have you know, a couple hours that emerge out of nowhere and you'll be able to squeeze in some rest because that's not going to happen ever. You've actually got to commit ahead of time to a certain time and commit to making it that time every single week. As I've taken inventory of my life, the time that works best for me is the same time that I mentioned earlier, Sunday afternoons. So sort of my pledge to myself and maybe my pledge to you guys since I'm telling you is that on Sundays at noon, I'm going to stop. Sunday noon hits, I'm just going to stop. It also helps that football's over. But Sunday's noon, I'm going to stop. You know, and I think Sabbath, uh, if you look at Scripture, Sabbath was always intended to be something that's done in community with others. Sometimes we think of Sabbath as like an independent, solitary activity that I just do by myself when I'm getting silent. No, Sabbath was done as a people, as a group, as a whole society. So if Sunday noon is a time that actually works for you too, then I'd welcome the opportunity to do my Sabbath knowing that some of you are also resting at that same time on that same day. And maybe in two months at the end of Lent we can compare notes. How did that go for us? Sunday noon. Having a set time and a set day is important because we can start anticipating that day in advance. We can start to arrange our work on the rest of the six days a week so that by Sunday noon, we can enter that time knowing that it's the time to stop, whether everything has been finished or not. Sunday noon, what I've done is what I've done. And what I haven't done is okay. I don't know about you, but I actually get pretty excited when I think about setting down the work and stopping. I might start to really look forward to Sunday noon. So as you identify a time, great. Now the next step is what do you actually do on Sabbath? Like what's the practical application? Like what's the activity? Well, I think we can start by saying what it's not. What does Sabbath not look like? So since resting starts with ceasing, what you don't want to do when you rest is anything that smacks of what you normally do the other six days of the week. So whatever normal work is for you, whatever normal work is for you, you cease that work when you Sabbath. If your work has you staring at a computer, then don't open your computer at all when you Sabbath. Close it. Put it away. Live as though your laptop doesn't exist. Turn off your notifications. Don't check your email. Avoid seeing screens entirely. If your work is with people, if you're always talking or counseling or serving or wiping runny noses, then Sabbath away from those demands. If your work primarily is inside of a building, then don't Sabbath inside, Sabbath outside. If your work is sedentary, then make your Sabbath active. If your work is driven by production or by selling, then don't produce anything and don't sell anything on Sabbath. If your work is done in isolation, mostly, then make sure your Sabbath includes other people. You have to do different on the day when you rest. Important footnote, footnote number one, here. The day of rest is not a day to run errands. 
It's not a day to do all the household work that you didn't get done that week. Sabbath isn't the time to buy groceries, and it's not the time to do laundry or vacuum the living room. Those things are all part of the normal work that we do during the six days of the week, that we're supposed to do during the six days of the week. The seventh day is set aside to not do the things that we have to do, but to do the things, to choose to do the things that we delight in doing. I like building stuff and making stuff. I've built our TV stand. I've built a bookshelf. I've built our bunk beds and the walkway that leads to our house. And you could look at all that stuff and be like, that's work. And technically, you're right. It's work in a certain sense. But it's so different than the kind of work that I do on the other six days of the week. So Sabbath isn't about not working. It's about not working the same way that you work all the time. It's about intentionally and aggressively not working the way you normally work. It's about finding the things that bring you joy and doing those things with an awareness of God's presence with you, trusting that God's rest is good for you. Footnote number two. We're not resting so that we can work. We're not resting so that we can work better on the other six days of the week. In other words, rest isn't a servant of work. We rest because rest itself is good. The rhythm itself is good. Footnote number three. I think it really will take some courage. Stopping might not seem like something brave and bold, but I actually think that it is. It will require some courageous decisions from us about work. Courageous decisions about athletics or about family or about community involvement or about church or about our relationships. We can't just add Sabbath to what we already do. We have to say no to good things. We have to carve out of our busyness something in order to say yes to what's better. So how does all this sound to you right now? How does God's created rhythm of work and then rest sound to you? Six days to work, a seventh day to rest. Six more days to work and a seventh day to rest. Are you ready to join the resistance? What's your response to God's invitation? Does it sound like a waste of time to you? Is it something that sounds good for someone else? Does it sound like more work? Or does it sound like something you desperately need? Ruth Haley Barton, in her book On the Rhythm of Work and Rest, wrote this. She said, to enter Sabbath time, despite all the challenges, there must be a real yes. A real yes deep down inside. A yes to our need, a yes to our desperation, a yes to God's invitation, and a yes to the rightness of it. This is the very definition of faith, to say yes when we have no idea how it's going to work out. But we know it's what we need to do. There really is no shortcut, she writes, no other way except through the doorway of desire accompanied by faith that God is calling us to something and God will show us the way. So my hope, my prayer for us this Lenten season and perhaps beyond is that we will be a people who say yes to God's invitation to rest, who trust that God's rhythm is good for us and good for our communities and good for our whole world, that we would produce and practice a rhythm of working and stopping and working and stopping, that we would remember the Sabbath and keep it holy, and in that sacred space, we would have time to meet with God in a new and different way. Amen? Let's pray.